0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're really excited to have on Dr. Jesse Wright, one of our new colorectal surgeons. Dr. Wright, welcome to the program.
1: So happy to be here, Dr. Lancaster. Thanks for letting me uh, join you guys today.
0: So, tell the audience just a little bit of your background and, and what you do for Baptist.
1: Sure thing. So, uh, I am a uh, Tennessee native. I was uh, from Nashville, Tennessee, um, and was able to do both my medical school and general surgery training in Nashville, where I was able to also meet my beautiful, wonderful wife, who's a uh, hospitalist uh, alongside you in many instances, um, and then did my colorectal training and some brief uh, time in practice in Orlando at Advent Health. And then was able to find an awesome opportunity to bring me back to Tennessee and uh, to the region um, for a great opportunity here at Baptist. So just joined the, the group and, uh, and started in November of last year. About eight months. Well, in. We're,
0: yeah, yeah. We're we're so glad to have you uh, at Baptist. And you know, so so tell me, what, what sort of surgeries uh, do you normally do? What sort of cases come to you? Um, yeah, what What does a colorectal surgeon do on a day-to-day basis? Sure thanks. So a colorectal surgeon is a a general surgeon that has
1: spent an additional year or two, depending on the path of uh, advanced training. Um, Our specialty uh, relies around general disease, benign and malignant disease of the colon, rectum, and anus, Um, and then a lot of similar pathologies within the abdomen and the perineum and the pelvis. Um, So uh, I operate uh, about a third of my practice is more or less benign um, anorectal disease. So kind of your general proctologist, hemorrhoids and fistulas and fissures and all of the ailments of the backside. Uh, But then the remaining part of my practice is uh, some major abdominal pathologies, So a lot of colon cancer, rectal cancer, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, um, and some of their related uh, pathologies and problems that come along with those. Um, And so that takes up about the majority of the rest of my practice. And so I uh, Will um, you know? I also do a, a bunch of colonoscopies and endoscopic surveillance for screening purposes, as well as followings of my own patients. So we have a broad spectrum of treatment modalities. Uh, we do, like I said, endoscopic or colonoscopic procedures. Uh, I do laparoscopic surgery, robotic surgery, traditional open surgery, um, and I even was trained in Orlando on a few techniques of transanal surgery. So being able to Uh, remove polyps and or early stage rectal cancers uh, through the anus and rectum itself uh, using uh, some advanced laparoscopic techniques uh, without having to actually resect the organ in question. So um, I'm happy to bring some of these techniques here uh, to the region if there's a few people doing it and uh, yeah, full full bread and butter practice of uh, benign and malignant disease here.
0: That sounds very interesting. So let's talk about a little bit about malignant disease. So what is the incidence for um, colon cancer in our region?
1: So I don't know if I have specifics to the region of Memphis, uh, but in general about the lifetime risk for developing a colorectal cancer. So that includes uh, the colon and the rectum, which is the same organ, uh, but uh, different compartments within the uh, within your body. It's about uh, 5% on an average risk human, uh, you know, with no family history or other major risk factors. So one in 20 uh, pay, uh, people out there will develop uh, colorectal cancer in their lifetime. Um, it is the third most commonly diagnosed cancer in the United States, but it's the second most common cause of cancer-related death. So it's a major problem uh, in, our, uh, in our society, um, and at least as it relates to our region, um there is a, a known higher proportion of disease incidents in the African American community, about twenty percent higher than when compared to to Caucasians. So um as it relates to Shelby County, um that would be an, an interesting regional statistic. But the uh that's about a again, five five percent risk is kind of the
0: known national average as it relates to incidence of disease. Oh um, and so I assume you see kind of a spectrum of disease. Um, you know, what are the different types and, and when does a colorectal surgeon get involved, I guess, in in, in the course of uh, somebody with colon cancer?
1: Yeah, uh, so, I mean, the great thing, and we, we can talk about this at length, is that colorectal cancer, it has a very known progression and pathway. And so about 90 to 95% of standard colorectal cancers are kind of the generic flavor, if you will, of of colorectal cancer Develops from a polyp and then through a series of changes uh, at the molecular level that polyp can advance into a cancer. So um, I see patients in the full kind of spectrum of their um, development and or discovery of, of an abnormality. So the majority of patients and the beauty of colonoscopy is being able to pre- detect and then prevent future cancers by removing a polyp um, that we then put under the microscope to determine how risky was this particular flavor of, of polyp. But at the same time, we identify uh, early stage cancers in patients uh, that would have otherwise been sitting there undetected as the patient was asymptomatic. So you get a screening colonoscopy by either myself or your gastroenterologist in the community or in the hospital, and they find an early cancer, uh, that to me is almost a victory in the sense of you got your colonoscopy and they found a, a, a cancer uh, that was otherwise not going to be detected. And as it is in many cancers, uh, unfortunately, if you um, if you end up having significant symptoms from these, by the time you end up looking into these, there, there may be a more advanced stage. And so this is... Uh, colon cancer along with breast cancer and other types that have dedicated screening programs are allowed to pick up several of these uh, processes before they've become uh, anything too, um, too bad or, too, uh, or at least very treatable. Uh, but it, you know, it's a very interesting question because the majority uh, of patients uh, present with treatable disease or non-metastatic or stage four disease. And that has a very good outcome, uh, you know, 85 to 90% of patients that we find with an early stage cancer have a very excellent, you know, five year survival, um, upwards of, uh, uh, like I guess, 85 90% with a five year survival. But then when you find things at a later stage or disease, stage four, or it's spread elsewhere in the body, unfortunately, that five year survival drops pretty significantly. And so this is where the benefit of early screening and detection comes into play.
0: What about stage two and three? Is that similar to the early stage or, or what does the problem so, look like for that?
1: Yeah. So stage two and stage three, you have about a so stage one is about a 95, 90, 95. And it goes down by about by about five percent with each one of those. Now, uh, stages two and three So about 90 and 85 percent. Um, you know, cancer care today in the 21st century, 2023 is very um different uh, in many ways from even when from 10 years ago with the utilization of uh, standardized genetic testing of yeah. um of uh, all of the tumors now as part of the pathologic assessment so everyone's getting their mismatch repair proteins tested which then allows uh some nuances into more targeted therapy um as other varieties of chemotherapy may not be as effective um and then there's also a lot of data on utility of chemotherapy in some of these patients in so much as uh, several recent studies have shown that either less uh, chemo may be needed, if uh, if needed, may be needed, uh, to achieve the same result. So you may only need three months of chemotherapy as opposed to six months, um, which is both good for uh, patients in the relative toxicities and or side effects of chemotherapy, but then also achieving the same kind of long-term oncologic response. So the general concept is stage one through three colon cancer is very very treatable and the expectation when you meet me in clinic is that we are aiming for curative intent uh, and then um, we can talk about how uh, you know we don't know whether you're going to see the oncologist or need chemo until after surgery with me because you don't know the stage until after the specimen has been processed by the pathologist.
0: So are there risk factors that individuals may have that will predispose them to colorectal cancer?
1: Absolutely. Just as with anything else in, in, in our health, this, you know, existence is there are things that uh, make us more uh, predisposed and or uh, more at risk for this. So the first and foremost is uh, going to be your, your genes and uh, your genetics. That's something you can't escape. Um, there are several well-known and well-defined, uh, gen- inheritable, hereditary uh, germline mutations of, uh, you know, Lynch syndrome and one, and, uh, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome. Uh, so the, there are several out there and, and others, uh, won't mention, uh, that are, have a very distinguished, uh, family tree. You can trace these out and associated. Um,
0: yeah, I, I couldn't remember. That was one question. I, you know, you gotta, you gotta know these for your, your boards for sure. But, um, I just asked ChatGPT, what are the uh <laughs> what are the uh, genetic diseases that are um, you know pretty special for colon cancer. You got the first two. The third one it said was something I've never heard of. MUTYH associated polyposis. Is that something yeah. that's Muty that yeah,
1: yeah, no, very it's similar in so much as it uh it I had I'd have to go back to my own uh I, I just took my boards uh last year, so I had to go back to the you you got me on this one. Uh, the, the nuances of the genetics there. But uh, there are several polyposis syndromes that have their own um, risk factors as it relates to number of identified polyps within your colonoscopy. Um, you know, FAP, which everyone, I think, can remember is kind of the, you get hundreds, if not thousands of polyps in your cancer, and there's a near 100% chance, or essentially 100% chance of developing cancer in a lifetime. So we actually recommend prophylactic removal of of the entire colon and rectum uh, for that mm. whereas lynch lynch syndrome has a known 20 to 25 percent incidence of cancer uh, along with other uh, kind of spectrum of families gynecologic cancers uh, G- upper gi cancers uh, urologic cancers. so you know a family history should include those types of questions then as you get into uh, some of the attenuated polyposis and uh, other putch and uh, Turcot syndrome, all these other ones that I'd have to go back yeah. and fully review, they have, you know, less incidence uh, and, and a more varying uh, presence of uh, GI involvement and in different kind of pathologies of their cancers are not necessarily all kind of standard adenocarcinoma. So, um, but yeah, I think for the most part, we're talking adenocarcinoma of the colon and rectum. Uh, FAP and, and Lynch will be your two big uh, genetic risk factors. Um, otherwise, I think for the most part. Um, you know, we've talked about ethnicity being a known risk factor, um, uh, smoking, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, uh, the the quote unquote modern Western diet uh, with increased meats, processed foods and low fiber are all been tied to this
0: Um but those is are kind of the tans- like, uh, like smoked meats is what, you know, it always, yeah, that- mean,
1: the, the nitrates and things I think are, yeah, those are, I, they, they count. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever myself been able to tag a patient's own personal, uh, dietary intake with this, but the, the, uh, the known, you know, the data out there say processed and uh, and smoked meats are, are a known risk factor. So, but more, I mean, definitely the gastric cancer, we know that to be a big, yeah. um, uh, a big risk for the, the smoked meats and the uh, the nitrates but uh it, it's listed on the uh risk factors in our own in our own world
0: nice um so you touched that that you do screening I, I didn't realize uh colorectal surgeons did that but um talk to me about the different screening modalities that are available
1: yeah i get this question all the time uh i think that pe- family members now love to uh make that phone call to me because nobody likes their colonoscopy i mean I, yeah. I, I get it, uh, but I think that the the two main uh, the two primary sources of screening that are out there are going to be your your screening colonoscopy, which is the gold standard upon which every other modality is compared, and then the the uh, the Cologuard uh, test, which is the is assessing for tumor related DNA in the stool. Um, there's the there's the fecal occult blood test, which has some value. which just touched. Uh, t- uh, looking for blood, uh, evidence of blood in your stool, uh, and then there are some imaging-based CT colonography, uh, double barium contrasted enemas that, that can work. Uh, but for the most part, if you're talking about commercially available and or uh, exciting and, and you know, talked about options, it's going to be your, your colonoscopy versus your Cologuard test. Uh, and I, In my hands and in, in my practice and, and most everywhere I've been, and this isn't just a bias of proceduralists, um, I'm going to recommend a colonoscopy to every one of my patients. And for those that either are physically unfit enough to undergo a colonoscopy uh, in so much as they may be frail or have bad heart or lungs and the anesthesia in itself or the prep uh, for and resulting electrolyte disturbances or fluid changes may make them more ill, then certainly a non-invasive, uh, Cologuard is an option, um, or for patients that will just refuse. I have patients that refuse screening, um, in which case, sure. Um, a Cologuard is a, is an option. And certainly Cologuard is better than any other than a not screening. Uh, yeah. but there, uh, I tell patients all the time that if you find anything on abnormal on a Cologuard, the next step is in fact a colonoscopy. Um, and then colon Cologuard is not, is not, uh, there's no test out there with 100% sensitivity and specificity. So, you know, Cologuard has a, uh, I think I read, a 12% false positive rate, which meaning that there's going to, it's going to say you've got a positive test when in fact there's nothing in your colon to suggest a, a problem, uh, which then means that patient's getting a colonoscopy unnecessarily, which in my mind is still necessary. Uh, and then uh, there's an 8% uh, false negative rate. So you have a negative test when in fact you do have a, uh, a problem or a cancer or a tumor. Um, so not, it's not 100% accurate. You have to do it every three years um, and I get the convenience, but whereas Cologuard acts as a, a detection uh, method, it doesn't offer any prevention. So colonoscopy, you can go, uh, you can get, your colonoscopy, you can see a small adenomatous polyp and remove it. And so you both that you're and then you can detect cancer. So you're preventing cancers by taking out polyps, and then you're detecting cancer. So you kind of get that added benefit. And then if you have a negative colonoscopy, you you know, the recommendations are anywhere from seven to 10 years, kind of based on um, different factors. But uh, I, I personally prefer colonoscopy as it, um, is very uh it's the gold standard by which we have uh determined accuracy and it's very it's very very safe uh and um despite the there are varying options for preps these days too not everyone has or gets the, the gallon of go lightly that uh, uh yeah you know, the tradition uh that no one's looking forward to although it go lightly works great um there's no questions asked but there are smaller volume preps there are more uh more gentle preps so to speak but at the end of the day, if you don't have a good clean out, then, then, you know, I, I, we can't see what we need to see. So, uh, but the, uh, the to touch on this a little bit more, so that the American Cancer Society and the United States Preventative Services Task Force uh, have recently dropped the screening age from 50 to 45, uh, which I think was, is very necessary. And I'm wouldn't, I'm probably not saying anything new, but we've all heard of uh the new, the Kind of phenomenon of younger onset uh, colorectal yeah. cancer in the last uh, last decade or so, whereas for the last 40 years um, we've seen a precipitous drop in the the um, in the incidence of colon cancer in patients over 50 because of screening, uh, because there's less smokers out there these days and all these kind of other things. But at the same time, we're seeing higher rates of obesity and other environmental risk factors. So it's a very unique time because we're balancing uh trying to capture these younger patients that otherwise are healthy um uh with you know you're talking about a a national recommendation for a prevention program so you have to take in the cost of what that means to society and uh what uh what the expected yield on getting the scope is and so it's a very it's a it's a very data-driven determination to, to drop that number and i think that it's uh, at least in, anecdotally i think it's very much uh, been been very uh, positive in regards of finding things that otherwise would have been missed for another 5 years.
0: Yeah. So screening starts at 45 for all individuals. And then average how risk.
1: Al- yeah, average risk individuals meaning no family history or any other uh, major risk factors 45 is the new 50. So get yeah.
0: And then if you have a normal colonoscopy when do you repeat that colonoscopy?
1: The the standard is about is 10 years on paper, but I think there's uh, you, 7 to 10 is generally what people with kind of the quote that I, I use about 7 to 10, and depending on insurance and, and other things, uh, but the, the paper would say 10 years, uh, but you probably be offered anything from 7 to 10.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so a lot of recent updates, I guess, in, in cold cancer screening. Uh, anything else kind of new in the field in the last, um, or just in cold surgery in general in the last five years uh for colon cancer things beyond some of the target
1: the the, as it relates to kind of a systemic uh situation i mean the 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 addition of the requirement of the genetic testing for for um for all colon cancer resections is is pretty standardized is standardized now um and but colon cancer otherwise has been pretty much if as long as it's not stage four, you're going to proceed with resection then determine your, your lymph node burden and your primary tumor uh, stage and then beat your need for chemotherapy thereafter. And so that's more or less been the same. And the major changes have been more on types of therapy based on the genetics of the tumor um, and some of the studies that have shown that you may not need as much adjuvant care therapy depending on the kind of risk of your tumor profile. Uh, the more of the major advances have been made in rectal cancer uh, in the last five to 10 years in a very uh, dramatic way. Uh, and this has been primarily in both the, um, and this is at a national setting, not necessarily here in Memphis or, or regionally, uh, but the adop- nationally the adoption of, of total neoadjuvant therapy. So uh, we now, uh, based on some major landmark papers from 2021 and uh, and others, uh, phase three randomized control trials, uh, the recommendation now is to receive all of your chemo radiation and your chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting. So you get all of it, and then uh, and then you get surgery uh, the, after that. Um, and this is for multiple reasons. One is the compliance with your chemotherapy in the traditional model was very poor because the traditional model for rectal cancer and locally advanced rectal cancer, uh, meaning, not just upfront surgery was, chemoradiation, surgery, chemotherapy. But if you can imagine trying to ask a patient to undergo systemic, you know, three to six months of systemic chemotherapy, in the weeks or months following a major resection, can be yeah. uh, can be uh, difficult. And especially if there is an unfortunate complication with surgery that also delays chemotherapy as well. So there was a very poor compliance on a national level with adjuvant chemo. Um, you know, anywhere from you'd have only 40 to 50 percent of patients actually completing the entirety of the prescribed dose at the prescribed interval. I mean, so it's, it's, nice. yeah, it's, it's it was poor. And so now moving it up front, you're getting compliance rates of 85 to 95 percent. Um, and then some nuances of whether you do chemo first or radiation first. Uh, and there's that's another whole discussion. But the other major determination or new um, new realm of rectal cancer is that. We are now seeing, with this, especially with the advent of these of, of the modalities beforehand, that you're having a complete clinical response to therapy. So, uh, in, meaning that you go in and look with an MRI and, and a endoscopy endoscopically, and there's no evidence of any tumor there at all. So the tumor vanishes, and so that opens up a whole new Pandora's box, so to speak, of what to do with that patient. And uh, there have been groups that have been doing this for. A, decade plus and, uh, or two decades, um, but this this uh, process called watch and wait. So you basically say, and this is a very individ- individualized discussion and, and, and the like, but um, basically saying to a patient, you've got no evidence of rectal cancer after you've received your, your chemotherapy and chemo radiation, and uh, we are going to put you on a very strict regimented surveillance protocol, uh, and you get to keep your rectum and avoid surgery altogether. Uh, and so, uh, the data on this is very strong. Um, we have, we know that with the TNT or total neoadjuvant therapy patients are having up to a 50%, if not higher in selective patients, uh, complete response rate. So that's almost a coin flip essentially of saying you're going to get therapy and then may not need surgery at all. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually reaching levels of anal cancer where, uh, if you get, you know, anal cancer and you get treated with Nigro protocol, so they're, that, prescribed chemoradiation, that's an 85-90% response rate, and that's expected. Um, And people rarely but do uh, require a a proper resection. Uh, But here in rectal cancer, in the last five years, uh, with kind of solid uh, data, we're seeing this phenomenon. And even in those that choose to go to surgery or in centers that say we're not really ready for uh, this watch and wait protocol to be prime time the uh, the pathologic complete response, meaning they take the rectum out and then there's no tumor in the specimen, is is still very high and we're still talking again 60, 70, 80 percent depending on centers and in their studies. So uh, it's it's a very exciting time for rectal cancer because we're learning about more about the nuances of uh, treatment modalities, genetic profiles, um, and then there are there are more ways to operate on the rectum than there are to operate on the colon. Um, Uh, By virtue of its anatomy and uh, where it is in the the abdomen or in the pelvis, and uh, the ability to get to some things from actually, like I mentioned, transanally, and some early stage polyps and early stage tumors. So, um, and my general thought is that there's uh, organ preservation, the the word we use for that, um, meaning you keep your organ or your rectum, should be the goal. um, If we can approve and know that the long-term oncologic outcomes aren't compromised, Um, and the data thus far suggests that yes that is true you, uh, you can um the disease-free survival and five-year overall survival um are equivalent to those that are going um or can be equivalent to those undergoing resection proper resection and that those that then later are found that keep their rectum and then found to have evidence of disease later can still undergo a salvage operation to to get them to the oncologic care they need with no real detriment to their oncologic uh outcome so it's a very you know, this is it's it's cutting edge in so much that it's now become prime time, but uh, I'd be remiss as enough I wouldn't send that There were programs that have been doing this for a decade uh with, with great success. And um and that was part of my training in Orlando was this that was one of the things that when I got here, I wanted to introduce because it was something that was known but not not ever talked about and actually gave kind of the uh medical oncology grand rounds journal club event last mm-hmm. week to uh here and kind of talked all about this. Um and uh, it was an exciting discussion because everyone it, we've been talking about it uh, in Tumor Board, kind of on a week by week basis, but kind of laying all the data out there uh, with this graphs and um, tables was a very lively discussion from our oncologists uh, uh, and everyone involved. So that, that's that to me is kind of the most exciting advances in, in colorectal cancer management is the what, what's happening in rectal cancer right now.
0: No, that that sounds great, and. And Dr. Wright, thank you so much for for joining us today. I, I know I learned a lot. Um, but just for the the audience, especially our primary care docs out there, you know, when should they refer, and what sort of patients should they refer to a colorectal surgeon? Um, you know, what sort of cases would be good for for referrals? Sure. So I, I've been to a,
1: several primary care offices regionally. Um, I think the you know baseline for a PCP is most often going to be. The anorectal disease. So you know, no one likes to deal with hemorrhoids and and fissures and fistulas and the like. And and to that end, I love it, and colorectal surgeons love it. Uh, we love being uh, the somebody's proctologist. Uh, but along the same line, not everything is a is a hemorrhoid. And so yeah. it's important too that you know, bleeding, uh, although most commonly is from a hemorrhoid. You know, having a, a, a full uh, you know exam and and workup and understanding of disease process uh, is important. So um, that's, that would certainly be an easy referral. And I've had a couple of people ask whether they have to go to GI first before they come to you. Absolutely not, send them straight on. Um, we'll be happy to, to see them. Um, and then certainly, at least from the, from the cancer standpoint, a lot of people are coming through the GI office in so much as they yeah. get their scope and, and discover things. But patients with a known history of maybe Lynch syndrome and their family should be probably seeing a surgeon for that discussion uh, or a known, uh, at least a known heritable uh, component. And then I'm a big proponent of, and we didn't talk about any of the benign disease, but Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Um, my general philosophy is that it's more so now than ever a multidisciplinary approach with the extent of medical interventions we can do with the biologic agents and the like, so that um, it's, it really should be a, when you have a diagnosis, meet a surgeon, A, so you have someone who knows you um, and can watch your evolution over time as you uh, initiate uh, medical therapy, but then also to be there if and when a crash landing occurs. And so you're not having someone who's not familiar with your case, but also to talk directly with the with your GI medical uh, um, director or your, your that component so that you can have expectations of do we you know, you failed the first two biologic agents, but you still have terminal ileal strictures or you still have small bowel disease that is banning re- you in the hospital so often perhaps this may be the time for surgery as opposed to trying a third line agent uh, or vice versa, saying, hey, I think this imaging that we have and the likes suggest that you may actually benefit from another agent, um, whereas surgery may not be necessary now. So I think that having uh, that multidisciplinary approach to these diseases is critical because in many instances, um, it's very easy to get put into a silo. You meet a surgeon who says it's time to take it out or a gastroenterologist who says we can treat this uh, uh, till the cows come home. And I think it's, it's right now, again, in, at this time, it's exciting because there's many ways to intervene that try to maximize uh, pr- bowel preservation, but also try to avoid uh, the crash landing when a patient comes in yeah. for kind of an urgent or an emergent uh, colectomy or uh, resection or perforation. And then, then you're talking about things like mo- most certainly getting you know temporary ileostomies or colostomies, which may otherwise have been avoided. So um, that would be my push towards primary care docs is, if you have a patient with uh, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it's just to refer them to a colorectal surgeon just to say hello, understand their surgical risk and the uh, the statistics that surround um, when and what indications are for surgery. And then having a surgeon on board for when
0: things kind of acutely change uh, that knows your story and knows your body. Yeah, no, very well said. Well, thanks again for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for seeing me credit. All right. Thanks so much for having
1: me. Pleasure to talk to you guys.